Welcome back to another episode of Season 2 of Stern Chats. Today's guest is a first-year MBA student, Devna Shukla, an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. So, Frank, want to tell us a little bit about Devna? Sure. Devna has done and seen some great stuff. Besides winning an Emmy, she also interned with President Obama when he announced he was running for president. Captivated by the desire to be at the forefront of breaking news, she was an employee at CNN for almost seven years. Devna specifically worked for Anderson Cooper's 360, breaking notable news stories including Hurricane Sandy, the Newtown shooting, and the Ebola outbreak. In addition, Devna also worked on a team to produce the Emmy award-winning documentary, Being 13, Inside the Secret World of Teens. Now in today's episode, we got a little help. Our associate producer, Nesham Jamshidi, is here, and she put this entire episode together. Nesham, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Frank. So can you tell us what makes this episode so special? Sure. Well, when meeting with Devna, I felt that she had a very strong sense of empathy and authenticity. In her job as a journalist, she had to reach out to complete strangers and get them to share their personal stories with her during the worst times of their lives when they were going through deep emotional stress. And the fact that she was able to connect with them and gain their trust, that was very special to me. Well, we're happy to have you. You put together a great episode. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was very close with my family, so I went to University of Maryland, which was close to home. And shortly after undergrad, I started working in federal consulting, where I worked on various government projects. And I always had this dream of moving to New York and going to business school. So I worked really hard to apply to NYU, and here I am. Here you are. We're so happy to have you. You're actually one of the original team members of Stern Chat. So thank you so much for your work on this episode, and I, I think we should get started. Yeah, let's get Devna in here. Q that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're here with Devna Shukla. Devna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so the one thing that we heard about you that's probably the most impressive is we're like, hey, this girl won an Emmy. It's true. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely not the typical business school background. So, yeah, we were pretty excited to have somebody that is not only an entertainment, but has has a little statue. Yeah, a little golden guy. statue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The only things that I have, I have like uh, baseball trophies from when I was like eight or nine. I got a tennis plaque. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, tennis, I feel like they always give you really strange awards. Like they give you like a, a golden plate or like a crystal True. a crystal vase for some reason. It's very strange. Yeah. I like it though. But, but yours is much more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's not an Emmy. Uh, yeah, so that's true, I guess. I, I've Googled a lot about that, and you're actually all over the internet. You're all over the CNN blogs. Yeah. You put out a lot of stuff. You got a pretty substantial TV resume. Listen, it it was um, a really exciting time and cool time in my life and just excited to share my experiences, my insights, and some fun stories with you guys today. Yeah, so you're an MBA one here at NYU Stern, first year MBA student. Uh, we know you because we see you around, but for people that don't know you, 
Can you give us like a 20-second pitch, 20-second background? Sure, absolutely. So I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I went to high school there and actually left D.C. to go to UCLA for undergrad. So very proud UCLA alum and moved here basically days after graduating from college to start my job at AC360. So I've been in New York for some time, and it's so exciting to sort of be at Stern and be in New York in the next chapter of my life as well. So AC, that's... Anderson, Anderson Cooper. Cooper 360 on CNN weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Oh my God! You just oh, pulled wow. Anderson Cooper. That was definitely a commercial. Well, a, unless Anderson Cooper writes me a check, I'm gonna edit that right out, Devna. I just want to skip forward to something yeah. that we are just like so excited to talk to you about, which is the Emmy. Sure. Right. I mean, you worked at CNN. You did so many great things. You've been involved in amazing projects. But the one that's most notable is the documentary that you worked on. Mm-hmm that won you the Emmy. Can you tell us about that documentary? Absolutely. So my boss at uh, CNN and the head booking producer there is really cool because she not only focuses on what's going on for the day's story, but is always thinking ahead. And so she basically dreamed up this side project of, we should really dig in more into teens and social media. And like, what does that really mean? And what does it look like? And not just make these like blanket assumptions that like, oh, all these teens use social media and like, it's terrible. I mean, it could be really good. We don't know. So... She had this great idea to put together an academic study based on collecting a lot of data on teens and their social media. So when are they tweeting? What are they posting about? What are their interactions with each other? And we essentially studied different schools and different um, social groups and really followed them for many, many months to pull out some really key insights. And so it was super exciting, not only for the academic in me as a poli-sci major at UCLA to have an academic paper published, but to also have this documentary on CNN to then win an Emmy for what you could argue is not like a news, day of news topic, um, but to win an Emmy for a really cool side project that was, you know, we just spent so much time on and had so much love for this project was a pretty cool way to to leave CNN. Now, I want to ask you about, I think, you know, Sherry, you're probably going to be interested in this. Well, I want to ask you about like the award ceremony and the wearing of the nice dress and the red carpet and all that stuff, but, you know, maybe we could just look for pictures online or something. We could probably skip that whole part if we need to. So it's actually sort of anticlimactic in a lot of ways. I actually left CNN, I think, a month or two before the Emmys, so I didn't get to go. And so... They didn't let you go? I didn't get to go, but but my team was well represented there, and I remember watching on a live stream, because I don't know that, like, we actually really thought... We would win because the Emmys, especially news Emmys, I mean, you see all these incredible stories from 60 Minutes and, you know, every single network. It's the best of the best. And so I remember I was in my room in my pajamas wearing my AC360 T-shirt and I won. <laughs> and so, you won an Emmy yeah, in your pajamas? In my pajamas. And so. Oh, my goodness. It was uh, at least it was super memorable. And I remember like my roommate was super excited and I called my parents. And so at least we were able to celebrate later on. Our team got together. But. I did not have that like red carpet moment with like Ryan Seacrest asking me anything, um, or sitting next to like David Muir. No, it was all in my apartment. You didn't have to like fake cry while you're giving your speech. Didn't get no. Just um, listen. I maybe I should have prepared a speech for you guys. I don't know. No. Oh, that we should have asked you to prepare what would have been your Emmy speech. <laughs> oh, I guess. No. <laughs> that that'll be for when you return to to Stern. Chat. I would love yeah. that. Well, okay, so back to the documentary, though. I think you probably had some interesting conclusions from your study that you guys did, and I think they're probably pretty relevant for people to hear. Absolutely. I think that we cannot underestimate the role that social media is playing in teenagers' lives. And you could also argue that this might happen in business school or for people who are in their 20s and 30s. 
For example, we call social media a real-time popularity contest. So usually, you know, back when I went to school, you knew where you stood with people when you left for the day. You sort of went home and did your homework and did outside activities. But now school extends beyond the classroom. And so one wrong post, one wrong comment, or lack thereof can really bring you down in these, like, social rankings. And so we saw how these teenagers were really obsessed with social media because they didn't want to mess out and they, and they also didn't want to do something wrong. And so it really, like, the scoreboard is always changing and until the late hours of the night, too. And just, like, the fighting or the posting or, the, like, stream of consciousness tweeting, um, it's, a real, it's a real thing. And we saw that parents really said, like, we know what's going on. We're really, you know, into our teen social media platform. We monitor it. But we saw that really wasn't the case, that they really didn't know what was going on or the severity, I think, of some of the conversations that were happening, too. There's no way that parents can monitor everything. It's not possible. Yeah, there's different apps and different, I'm sure, like, inventions that you can use to monitor. But I don't think they realize, like, their teen is posting this, and it's, like, publicly available online. Like, we didn't, like, dupe anyone into giving us information. Um, So if we can find it, like, anyone can find it. And there's always that ramification of, like, colleges and employers. And But in reality, like, it is just, I think, startling for people to see a different side of their child, you know, being presented online for everybody. One insight that we found is that um, on Instagram, you can like geotag your location. And so instead of saying that you're at Stern, you could be like having the best Friday ever. But if you write having the best Friday ever, it still drops a pin. And so we saw that some of the girls that we were following um, would post like that same thing, like having the best Friday. They were at a lake and then I could literally pinpoint down to the street block where they would, where they were rather. And so that has a lot of sort of privacy and safety and security issues that I don't think parents really know about social media that well. But we were able to sort of have that conversation between teens of why they do this, why it's important, and also how parents can really sort of ramp up their arsenal of ways to really protect their their child as well. Well, what about this dichotomy between what they portray themselves as being or doing Absolutely. versus what they're actually doing? And how does that play out? And, and what does the research say that you that you discovered? Even just anecdotally, after we analyzed all this data, we then met these teens and met these parents. And we just couldn't believe because they're, you would never imagine that a teen who posts really provocative, and that could be anything from either violent or sexually explicit or just aggressive postings, that you meet them in person and they seem like a totally normal, like, 13-year-old who's like, hi, nice to meet you. And so, like you said, that dichotomy between, like, who you are and who you are online and who do you believe, to be totally honest? If you're an administrator and you see a really threatening tweet online, do you believe that that's just, like, an online persona or do you believe that that is who the person really is? And so we learned about sort of the way they tweet. There's a lot about selfies, too. It's like the selfie generation of... These teens can take over, I think, 150 photos before they post one. So and, many. And if they post one and it doesn't get enough likes in five minutes, they'll delete it. And so, again, it's this idea of, like, a real-time popularity contest that you have no control over and you're at the mercy of someone else's likes. It sounds so exhausting and just so, like, consuming. Well, that's – listen, that's an important topic and it's really relevant now. And I hope a lot of people watch the documentary. Thank you. And they were impacted by it. I mean, sounds like you deserved the Emmy. Where do you put that thing, by the way? This is such a horrible but honest answer. It lives under my bed in a in the box it oh, came in. Oh goodness! <laughs> Are you gonna geotag that so one of us can come swipe it from you later? You know what? You gotta let that thing breathe. Put it out on a shelf. I think so. It's actually you got it. You have to. Bring, you know what? Can you at least take a picture so we can put it on our Instagram? Oh, Absolutely. We love that. Absolutely. That'd be good. Love can that. I just borrow it? 
for my house <laughs> for like a minute or two. One of my best friends, she has multiple Emmys because she's such a superstar, and she uses them as bookends on her bookshelf, which actually is pretty, I think, pretty awesome. Oh, my oh, God. That, <laughs> that actually really upsets my me. My apartment is not that nice to have it like that, but it's pretty great. Wow. So I use like a large stone I find on yeah. the side of a block. <laughs> when you're using your awards as like kitchen implements, you know, and like tools for your house, like that's when you know. Oh, she's a rock you know, star. If you're like, you have like a trophy and you're drinking out of it like a cup. <laughs> That'd be like if Michael Phelps was like using his his, his medals his for like. Go- goblet. <laughs> yeah. Like for his like cereal bowl. Yeah. That's like if he was using his medals as like a pog slammer or something. But at least it's out there in like a subtle way. Mine like lives, literally lives under my bed. And so hopefully it will well, find a better home soon. Maybe my parents want it. I don't know. Bring it out. Dust it off. <laughs> um, so tell us about your experience uh, working, you know, right out of school and in the fast paced industry in New York. It, it was, it feels like a different life in many ways, but it was like the best life to have that experience at CNN for so many years. Essentially, I started as a production assistant at CNN, but my story starts a little bit before that. I started interning with CNN when I was in high school. I lived in the DC area and just got obsessed with this, this idea of like working in journalism and I had this light bulb moment that people could actually work in TV and make a living and tell people's stories. And so I think the first sort of pinnacle of my career, that first sort of lightning bolt moment was I applied for an internship at CNN DC in high school and they accepted me. And I basically never left since then. I was I was so grateful to be a part of CNN at such an early um, age, basically I was like 16 or 17. See, that's amazing because I mean, most people in high school, they, they're like working at a popsicle stand or they're like a lifeguard or, you know, what'd you do? What well, your job, Sherry? Very, very sad jobs that I won't, <laughs> I would not like to reference I here, but I did not have the foresight or focus to have, you know, even applied to something like this. That's incredible. Yeah, you were focused. I think also focused, but also me, my, one of my dad's mantras is apply and forget it. So always just apply for something, try your best, and then forget about it. The worst that can happen, obviously you won't get it or it ends up in like the circular folder of the trash can or it could change your life and that is definitely very true of I think of all of my life experiences yeah I think we call that volatility in the stock right when it could do nothing or it could just be tremendously amazing absolutely it could be like the best thing ever sorry nice Listen, business I got, term <laughs> I got half an MBA at this point I'm trying to, trying to use it and no no, no you can't say that anymore you have three quarters of an MBA really oh that's true yeah, yeah I'm almost, I'm almost yeah. done with it yeah so that's how you got into TV journalism. But after that entry-level position, what was your first substantial position? Sure, absolutely. So it definitely was as a production assistant for Anderson Cooper here in New York. So I moved days after graduation and just hit the ground running here. And being a production assistant is really interesting because people always think it's like you're getting coffee or you're doing a lot of like the manual labor of sort of those old TV movies that are out there. But in reality, at 316 at CNN, they really sort of throw you into the main team. You are working with producers and helping them tell the best story possible for their individual segments or their individual assignments for the day. And so from the first day, it was like, get get with it and join this train because the train is moving and you're a part of it now. Okay, so it's not like the Devil Wears Prada where you're just getting people no, coffee No, not at all. It's a lot of responsibility, I think, especially working on such a high-profile prestigious show as well that there is little if any room for error and so every single detail that you work on whether it's someone's name um, an animation or a graphic to and basically show more about a story if you don't have the visuals for it um, you're responsible for those things and so you're in the control room you're in these meetings and so it's definitely a very high pressure and high stakes 
situation for sure. Well, speaking of the control room, were you ever intimidated working in the control room for such a prestigious show? I mean, millions of people are going to be watching that every single night. You know, I don't know that I had time to think about being intimidated, to be totally honest. <laughs> well, that's good. There are some jobs in the control room where you just have to, you just basically black out everything else that's going on and just focus on your responsibilities and just focus on the show for that one hour. And some days can be a little bit lighter where there are planned events that happen in the world in the morning and there's sort of reaction and analysis of that in the evening or something can happen while you're in the control room and literally it's the line producer's job to control all and delete your plans for the evening and you just like roll with it. And so... Do they say that to you? They say like, I'm going to delete your plans for the evening. Absolutely. They're oh like, this, this This segment that you may have worked on either all day or for a long time, it's either canceled or moved because there's something really important happening in the world. But it's really exciting to know that at any moment's notice, your whole day and your whole plans could change. And no matter what, the show starts at 8 o'clock, and so you better be ready. That seems like not only are you going 100 miles per hour, but you are... Basically, you know, a couple years out of college, you're fresh into your career. What did you learn about yourself in those moments? I think I really learned that I'm pretty cool under pressure. And I think it comes from the environment at Anderson Cooper 360 where everyone there is extremely supportive. And it's definitely a team and, and really a family mentality. So I think I learned that, like, keep your calm, keep your cool, ask the right questions, and take a lot of initiative. Um, and so it's definitely something that I've tried to carry on now with midterms and being a student of just like keeping your cool when that stress level definitely starts to rise. I would love to hear an example of when things just, things just shattered, right? Like things got crazy. Oh my goodness. There are so many memories and experiences and because the show's on Monday through Friday that it's like a lot to sort of categorize and catalog in my own mind. There are times where you book a really important guest for the show and for some reason the satellite feed, if that person's not in New York doesn't work or they're coming to New York and there's either traffic or the subway has issues. And basically this like really amazing feat that you achieved won't ever see the light of day because this person like can't get to a camera. They ever cancel? Does someone ever cancel? Oh, definitely. Who is it? Tell us. Call them out. I couldn't even tell you. I've tried to like blur out those those moments. Who's it going to be? You know, people will call you and, you know, because real is life Is it Bill happens. Maher? Is it Bill? <laughs> no. Is Bill it? Maher would never cancel. He loves hearing him his own yeah. voice he does seem way very too prompt. much. <laughs> <laughs> but you would be surprised. I mean, also people have real life that happens. So if someone says at four o'clock they can join you you see you tonight no problem and their child gets sick or another more important meeting comes up you know you have to really deal with this really fluid situation of just the world is changing people have real lives and stuff happens yeah it sounds like you sort of took that lesson that your father taught you apply and forget it and you are applying that straight into your job you know you work on a segment and if it goes it goes and if it doesn't scrap it move on and it also you know the segment isn't really real until it ends up on tv <laughs> so you can have all these great plans and whether you know the new the news changes for the day or whether someone cancels or something happens you are at the mercy of one million different variables that you just have to like roll with it and always think about okay what else could we do who else could we talk to just to make sure we get the story out there in the best way possible it sounds like controlling the chaos a little bit but yeah. it's different as a it's different as a like a young person just like starting out because I'm sure they only give you like a little bit of control of things because you're just like getting your feet wet in this industry. You didn't stay there, right? You continue to like move up in the CNN organization. So right? I actually was at 360 and Anderson Cooper my, the whole time I've been at News. So always at CNN, always at 360. So became a from a PA to production assistant to an associate producer, associate producer to an editorial producer. 
And so I think AC360 is a really, you know, it's the only place I really knew in TV, but it was the best, you know, training ground and like Olympic team to be a part of where everyone there is incredible and extraordinary and they really do cultivate talent from within. When you become an editorial producer, I'm sure they give you a lot more control. You get to probably work on some some bigger news stories. I mean, what kind of stuff did you get involved in now that you like stepped up to a bigger leadership position? Absolutely. So one thing that was really great about the program and the leadership team over there is that I was never discriminated against because of my age or experience. They really sort of threw me out into the deep end and said, you can do this. You have proven that you can do this and no story is too big or too small. So whether that's traveling um, for breaking news stories, that's something that I definitely did often, or whether that's working on high profile guests, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Devna's really young, we'll give this someone more senior. It was like, she can do it just as capable as someone else and we're all the team, we can all support her in doing so. Now, on your on your uh, little research about you, mm-hmm. we found out you were a booking producer. Yes. Which I think is relevant for some of the stories that we're gonna tell about um, that you got involved in these big news stories. Can you just tell the audience before we get started, what does a booking producer do? Absolutely, so a booking producer or a booker, as people say in short ta- shorthand in the industry, is someone who's almost a key storyteller. They're the ones digging around for those voices. So if something happens, let's say there's a tornado in Arkansas, who can you talk to? And while the whole team will brainstorm sort of who that person might be, it's your job to really find them. Find them, connect with them, convince them to come on air, tell their story. Um, and so you really are looking for, and sometimes a needle in a haystack, not to be totally cliche. That is a cliche, but we'll allow it. Listen, I've allowed one, I think. <laughs> yeah. So you have actually covered a lot of really important events in in our history in our in our recent history definitely including hurricane sandy the newtown shooting and the ebola outbreak which is i mean quite a lineup so can you tell us a little bit about how you positioned yourself to get staffed on those projects and what it was like booking for those stories sure well the interesting thing i think about me and being in news that i am not an adrenaline junkie i'm much more reserved I'm much more, I think, hesitant to do these things, but part of the job was we had a team of editorial producers or bookers, and my boss would say, it's your, it's your time to go. You got to go. Like, pack up your bag and hit the road. Just like that. Just like that. And it also was because she has so much confidence that no matter who it is or whether it's me or someone else, that we can all support each other from headquarters in New York City to wherever we're going as well. And so it literally would just be like, there's a story happening get a pack a bag and go. Okay, so, all right, so take me into it, right? So, like, the Newtown shooting, which is an incredibly tragic event, like, that happens, right? And they tell you, I'm sure you were very sad, you see the news, or you hear the news, however you, you were, were received the information, and they say, hey, get your stuff, you got to get up, and you got to start interviewing people or finding out the story, right? Sure, so Newtown is very, uh, I don't want to say it's interesting because it's so horrific, but the, the events unfolded in a really interesting way personally, where I remember it was a Friday in December, and we heard that there was a school shooting in Newtown. And, you know, you just don't know the caliber of what's happening. You're not sure if the news report is even true at that point, but it's important to get out there to make sure you can get the best information possible. So I remember I literally rented a car from Hertz in the city and probably started driving out there maybe around like noon or so, very, very early on in the day. Again, had no idea what was happening. Of course, as time went by, we all learned how truly horrific the situation was. And it became something where it wasn't even like go and cover the story. It was, I really felt like I was there as people were getting information. So while people were waiting outside the school to figure out what was going on, you know, 
booking producers and editorial producers and TV cameras were also going there to try to figure out what is a story. And I was there for, I think, about nine days and went just with the clothes on my back. Obviously, you can go then and you know buy things at Target and get some sort of necessities, but it really was that moment where, unlike something happening like, you know, a a match being lit and then you're responding to that. This was like, you had no idea what was going on and they sent me out there and you have to respond to that as well. Well, I mean, like you're bound, so it sounds like it's it's an interesting balance because like for that particular incident, it's incredibly tragic. Mm -hmm. So your job sounds like as a a booking producer, you're a little bit of an investigator. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing some detective work, but also like you're dealing with people that are like really traumatized. So how do you balance just having empathy for the situation versus being aggressive in getting information? Can I also add one more thing to that? Mm-hmm. How do you manage your own emotional response? Right. Because, you know, I can only imagine that's a really long drive to Newtown. Mm-hmm. So you are probably freaking out. You know, what's happening? You're, you're thinking about your own mortality. And then you have to jump into work mode. Absolutely. So definitely driving there, you're really just laser focused on, like, getting there. And so, like, basically just taking baby steps. Like, I need to get from New York to Newtown and drive. I think it's, like, two and a half or three hours. So I need to go and drive there and get there. And then, again, like, touch base with what's going on in New York. What do they know? Where should I go? Um, I think for the emotional part, I learned a really important lesson from another CNN producer there who said, when you go somewhere tragic take time to mourn while you're there. And I think that I don't, I didn't really understand what was going on in Newtown because you're there in the town, you're immersed in it, you're meeting these amazingly like wonderful people, this beautiful town. But my colleagues in New York are the ones who are seeing all the photos of everyone who was killed. And they are, you know, they, they know so much more about it from an eagle eye view. Um, so for me, I remember seeing on Instagram of all things, a collage of all the students who were killed. And that's when I remember crying in my hotel room. But it felt like the most important thing to do because it's so horrific. But it's important, I think, to process those emotions because you aren't a robot. It is really sad. It is really horrific for our whole country. And so to go there and to be a part of that in terms of trying to sell the stories, you know, we would always say we would love to have people remembered not for the way they passed, but for the lives that they lived. And that was really the goal, I think, um, of being at AC360 and also being a producer. You want these stories to shine because everyone has their own personal story. So it's less about I need to get this interview, I need to talk to this person, especially in a time like Newtown. It's how can we help tell their stories in a very respectful way um, and be really mindful that you are going in in any situation in likely the worst moment of someone's life. And here you go showing up you know, at their door or in their email inbox and so it's really about having respect, a lot of integrity, and trying to make sure they know the opportunity exists without being overly aggressive um, and being focused on a TV program that, in the grand scheme of things, is not yeah, as Yeah, it's just important. television. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I, it sounds like you're aware that, like, the television program is, like, very secondary to what's happening in these people's lives. But how do you connect in a professional capacity with someone when all that's happening? Like, how do you connect in the face of tremendous chaos and trauma? I think one of the biggest lessons I learned at CNN is how amazing people are. You know, there's that Anne Frank quote about how people are inherently good at heart. And it's incredible that you can go to someone's home during these, again, extremely tragic times, and they ask how you're doing, or they ask if you need, like, a cup of tea. And you're thinking at the same time, like, how can you even think about that? I would be on the floor not not knowing what to do with myself, and yet this person is able to just take it one breath at a time. And so I think there's a lot of, it's a weird situation and there's an opportunity to also connect with them because you are there to hear their story. So I have some friends who I met out there 
because they went through a really horrific time, their family member was killed, and we're still friends, and we still get together, and we still see each other whenever they're in New York, because you come in there, it's a really chaotic time, but you try to also add some clarity, because you say, you know, you can talk to Anderson, you can talk to our program, and share a family member's story, and control that narrative. So there is an element of some sort of control, I think, in terms of how you interact in that experience. Can you give us an example of somebody that you talked to who changed your life and what was it that they said or did in that scenario? Absolutely. And a lot of this is, you know, it can be in person. So when you're out in the field and, you know, exploring and trying to find people, it can also be over the phone. You can make some like really great friends over the phone by talking to them and trying to talk them through what's going on or hear what's happening during a a major storm. One person who sticks out or one family is actually a family in Newtown where they actually reached out to CNN and said they wanted to share their daughter's story with Anderson. And so we weren't like bombarding them or trying to invade on their personal and, and private time. And I remember going there and seeing Christmas, a Christmas tree up and Christmas decorations up and presents there because it was right before Christmas. And I just remember this family wanting to really focus on this idea of we really want to honor our daughter because she might have been young, but she mattered and she's important to us. And, you know, she had so much joy and love in her heart. I remember just being in this family's home and feeling so honored to be there, but also just looking at someone again in that face of adversity and how they were so gracious and so loving and so thankful that we were there in a really strange way. Um, I think it just shows like the dignity of, of people in our country and people around the world who, during really hard times, they can really focus on what's important to them and not get lost in that chaos. Yeah. You, I mean, you've been involved in a whole bunch of like hard times type mm-hmm. news stories. And, you know, just in looking through the notes on, you know, like the stories you've worked on, it seems like you're you're pretty good at, at, at like getting to the core of the story. I mean, I was even reading that when you went to the Ebola outbreak, you were like throwing cell phones (laughs) up to people like can you tell us that story sure so i was dispatched to dallas when all the ebola stuff started happening for lack of a better term and essentially i was able to connect with the man who had ebola Um, his daughter was a nurse and was the one who really called 911 and said we've already been to the hospital but something's really wrong and no one's really listening and this needs to be escalated so I was able to connect with her, which is great, and we wanted to hear her story and hear sort of what that was like about pushing, pushing like medical authorities, being like, I know something's really wrong with my dad, and he needs help, and this could be potentially dangerous for our whole country. And so I remember that we were supposed to, I was supposed to basically go over the next day to do, you know, perhaps a phone interview or an on-camera interview. The power went out, and then we started learn, to learn more about Ebola and that someone who has been exposed to someone with Ebola has, that I believe, a 21-day period where they could also develop symptoms and, you know, be diagnosed with Ebola themselves. And so it was this moment of you actually have to worry about your own personal health and safety as well, instead of just saying, like, oh, I can talk to someone and, like, leave, and it's no problem. Of course, there was a big thunderstorm the night before, as happens in TV. There are always, like, different, you know, hurdles and obstacles. And so her cell phone wasn't charging, and so you could think, okay, I can give her my cell phone and she can do this interview with Anderson over the phone. But then because she might have Ebola, it became a real discussion about how do I make sure I'm safe, that I don't give her my cell phone and take it back. And it's an iPhone and it has all my you know, information about you know, how to connect back with New York and to what to do. So 
I remember sort of shopping from store to store to find a burner phone. Where if you go to like a Walmart or a Target, <laughs> you can find a burner. Oh my god! What did you say when you went in? You're like, um, do you have any burner phones? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think burner phone is like way more like like te- I don't know what the word is like way more like mafia like or way more like technical. Essentially, it's looking for like a prepaid phone where I could use it and then not have to I worry know, about I it. I know, yeah, prepaid phone, but like you said, burner, <laughs> I which said like burner. <laughs> makes you sound like way cool. It's like, yeah, I just like grab my burner. <laughs> no big deal. Cool or sketchy? I, know. I, know. I, I think don't both know. cool and sketchy. <laughs> I know, but luckily I was able to find. So like, of course, I like went to all these stores. None of the phones worked because the cell towers were down. And then finally I found, um, it's I don't know if I should plug this or not, but finally I found a store, it's called Cricket Wireless, where you can go in and like literally sign up for a phone. And I went... Ah, uh, yes. Cricket Wireless, home of mediocre cell service. I'm just kidding. Listen, <laughs> or, and, but to this day, I still like see Cricket Wireless and I'm like, thank you. Because I remember that one time they saved me. So I basically went there and signed up for a phone. Um, and I think I dialed the control room when I went back to this woman's apartment and then like put it in a plastic bag and sort of pushed it to her a few feet away, and then she was able to basically take the phone and, like, talk to Anderson and have an interview with Anderson. See, that's still pretty bold because, I mean, even though you were trying to protect yourself with the plastic bag and the other phone, you still don't know what's going on with the whole Ebola thing. It's true. It's true. But, you know, the whole time I was in contact with the newsroom and and everyone, they were super supportive and, like, cheering me on. They are like, we know you'll figure it out. And so it takes – there is a lot of Devil Wears Prada moments of, like – You like that movie? I love that movie. That's like the – that's like the second time we brought it up today. I love that movie, but there are a lot of moments where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much more complicated or strange than I thought it would, but you just be really, really creative and like figure things out. I bet you wished you were in a bubble boy suit at that moment in time. I think at that point I was just like, <laughs> what is, like, of course, like there's a thunderstorm and this person might have Ebola of and course. all these things, but, you know, we were able to get that interview and she was able to tell her story and the rest, is, I guess, is history. It's prophetic fallacy. Wow. You know, that that literary device where the outside environment mirrors your inside turmoil? Anyway. (laughs) Listeners, what what you're hearing right now is Sherry is a very smart person. This is very educational, whether it's like English terms or finance. I mean. Yeah, that's great. Devna, we thought we were going to learn from you, and you've come in. You've learned from Sherry. I know. Listen, and you too. Okay, so you worked at CNN. Yes. And you won this Emmy, and you obviously have had a great career. And, you know, there's something that's come up about CNN recently, and everyone at Stern hears about it. Hmm. Everybody in the country hears about it. But for you, it's personal. Hmm. And this is the advent of fake news. Oh, yes. And people taking shots at CNN or or just claiming the whole fake news thing. You know, that's got to be personal for you versus just like a talking point for us. It's funny. It's one of those terms I feel like people now are using a lot, even as a joke. And like you said, like, I don't really take it as a joke only because... I know those people who work, you know, and CNN, or at least, you know, a fraction of them. CNN is, you know, the pinnacle of, like, trustworthy journalism. Really, you know, I went to Newtown. I went to all these places. But we have people all around the world who are really trying to get the real story in Syria and Baghdad and wherever there's a, a something going on, to be totally honest. So to say that it's fake news, it's 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 hard to even talk about because these people work really hard to basically go under that headline because you can scream fake news all day, but you know what? CNN, especially Anderson Cooper 360, with their focus on keeping them honest, will find sort of why are you screaming that? And they have a really brilliant ad campaign that's surrounded by an apple, and it says you can say it's a banana, you can say it's orange, you can say it's all these things, but an apple is an apple. Like, the facts are the facts. So I think the best way to win an argument is show us your facts and don't make these, like, egregious claims that, it's what like what is fake news? 
Like, are you asking me personally? I, I don't even know. I'm not an authority. I was just asking you because I thought, you know, <laughs> you would know better than we would. I know. But know? that idea that, like, people are out there making things up, it's, it's, I think, pretty horrific because you can't have it both ways. You can't say that they get some stuff right and some stuff wrong. In journalism, you're either telling the truth or you aren't. And these people work really hard and make a lot of personal and professional sacrifices to make sure that information gets out there. And, you know, I think, you know, they say now more than ever, journalism is important. I think that it's just important to support these organizations and to watch and to subscribe and to do all these things to be engaged to really take that phrase, I think, out of our conversation. The news today, some people may call it a male-dominated industry, Mm -hmm. right? What was it like working in, in that type of environment? Was that a struggle for you at any point? Did you have to overcome some boundaries? What I think is really amazing about, especially CNN and AC360, there are so many um, incredible women who are there. So, for example, like on, whether on leadership or my colleagues. And so I never felt that pressure of being a male-dominated industry. But I think what's even better is that the fact that people are constantly looking for ways to lift each other up. It sounds very like... Pollyanna and sounds very like everything was so great. But to be honest, it was an incredibly supportive environment, which I think then helped push me to come to places like Stern that are outside of my comfort zone. And so I'm thankful I didn't have those struggles, but also thankful for those people who also went through those things. So to see like Christiane Amanpour, we used to have, um, or 360 was on the same floor as her staff and to see her and to know that it wasn't easy for her um, and she really paved the way. It's Yeah, why wasn't, why do you think it wasn't easy for her? I think especially probably in war zones, even though I've never been to one, there's probably the stigma, I think, that's similar in many other fields that, you know, women can't hack it out there. Women aren't strong enough or they can't, you know, survive out there. But there are so many incredible war correspondents and journalists who are always out there um, covering these stories. And it doesn't matter about your gender. It really just matters about your own personal grit and tenacity. And so it's great to be a part of a newsroom where, if anything, there were more women than men, especially at AC 360. And so it was great to have that camaraderie. So you have had a pretty spectacular career that has led you to Stern. Thank you, by the way, for, (laughs) no, seriously, coming and joining our community and enriching it with your stories and your background and your different perspective. And I think Frank and I sort of want to know What's what's next for you? You know, how do you want to leverage this experience and take it forward? Sure. Well, I have to say thank you for saying that. It's like the nicest thing I've heard in a long time. I am so grateful to be here, especially as a New Yorker or just as someone who's dreamed of going to, you know, world-class business school. There are days where even if I'm like in the library studying, I pinch myself because I feel so lucky that I'm here because there are like 100 people, you know, vying for even one seat. So I feel very grateful to be here. Um, what's next for me is that I hope to transition into tech, which sounds sort of out there, but I think my my passion for this idea of connecting people through technology and through digital innovations has really grown stronger over the years. And so I hope to really leverage those relationships I have at CNN and the skills I've learned there to transition into a career in big tech. And we'll see sort of how it all plays out. Well, we wish you the best of luck. I think you have really set yourself up for a very spectacular career moving forward and you clearly have the connecting with people thing down perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And you know, uh, you know I have some great teachers. Oh, it's great. Well, and you know what? I don't you're not going to be afraid of talking to anybody. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you talked to everyone from like man on the street interviews to like I mean, you interface That's with That's some Anderson. journalism jargon right there. Yeah. Man on the street. Wow. I've been, yeah, I've been doing some reading. <laughs> Just so you know, like um I, it was told to me recently that we what me and Sherry are doing is journalism and I was unaware of that until maybe 4 weeks ago. Yeah, it is. Um, we just thought we were talking and having fun. <laughs> so, 
Uh, yeah, I figured I'd, I'd get some terms because it turns out we're doing more than talking and having fun. But but yeah, I mean, you've met some like high profile people. You've met like Anderson Cooper. You met President Obama, mm-hmm. right? So, so like you're not afraid of anybody at this point. Yeah, so that's, I think, one of the biggest uh, skill sets that I walked out of, like you said, not afraid to talk to anybody. So even, you know, here at Stern during your first week here, you have a project during orientation, and my group had a question about, like, recyclable cardboard, and we couldn't figure out the answer. And I was like, why can't we just call the company? And they were like, you can do that? And I said, well, their phone number is listed, so, like, (laughs) I'm going to go outside and call them. And so I think that idea of, like, Taking initiative, you can always talk to someone. There is always a person on the other end of the line. It's something that's definitely taken away from me. So it is funny when people are like, you've met Anderson Cooper. And I was like, well, he's part of our team. It's like a big football team, you know, and he's that quarterback in many ways. Yeah, what's he like? He's, he gives us the, give us the dirt. What's he he like? is an incredible guy. He is. Top three adjectives. Top three adjectives about Anderson Cooper. Humble. Got it. Kind. Oh, got it. Yep, cool. And intelligent. Handsome. Okay. He's a true New Yorker. And, you know, people <laughs> would always... People find it so surprising. I have friends who have run into him on the subway, and they're like, we see him on the subway more than you. And I said, well, that's the type of guy he is. He's super humble. He's super, um, whatever the opposite of, like, egotistical is in terms of he wants to hear your story. So every time I would bring in friends to visit, they, he would ask, like, well, what do you do, and what's that like? And so he is not about himself in any way, shape, or form. And so it was really awesome to have that experience, too, of having an egoless you know, person that you work for who um, is just incredible. Such an icon. He sounds cool. If I did see him on the subway, I'd have to do the cool New Yorker thing and just, like, act like he's not a big deal. Like, that's what you got to do. You just got to, you know, hey, Andy, what's up? And you just give him the coffee raise. <laughs> you just raise your coffee at him. Like, hey, just give him the salute. That's, if Anderson Cooper, if you're listening, we're not going to bother you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of humble, that is certainly a word that we could use to describe you. Thank and you. thank you so much for coming on. You have told us so many incredible stories, and we can't wait to to see what you do next. Thank you. Know? you. You're, you're a pretty, pretty amazing person. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. I can't believe I've only been at school for like two months, and I get to get to talk to you guys and do something like this. So I really appreciate you guys telling those stories about Stern, but also inviting me here as well. Yeah, it's great to get your take on all this stuff. So, hey, did you have fun? I had the best time. You did? See, that's our goal, right, Sherry? That's half the goal. Oh, yeah. more. I think we we definitely more than accomplished it. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Devin. Thanks Thank you so in. much. Thank you.